Hello, it's uh, iBook Binding's uh, podcast. It's uh, the 17th episode, and uh, today our guest comes from Greece, from uh, Athens. It's uh, Dimitris Kaut. Uh, it's Dimitris Kutsipitidis. Correct. There. It's it's really embarrassing because uh, uh, the sound c is is quite used in Russian language. So uh, mm. it uh, I, I I feel a lot of pain in not not being able to you know to master it right now it's okay um hi uh, dimitris it's very good to hear to, to, to hear you to see you as a guest here hi stepan hi pavel uh, thank you very much for the invitation it's great talking to you people and as usual my co-host joins us from moscow hi pavel hi everyone dimitris uh, could you tell us a bit uh, how you decided to to make books and especially how 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 it happened that you decided to make tools because not every bookbinder decides to make uh, his own you know, their own tools and especially uh, tools like you make because they are quite you know special thank you um i actually jumped from leather working to bookbinding back when i was at the university I used to make small leather goods and sell them on the streets um, at touristic locations. And back then I was studying at the university. So I did this for, you know, basically pocket money. And um, at some point I, I stumbled upon a book fair and there was a kiosk which had uh, bound books. And, you know, it, uh, it sparked a thought in me. Could I make this? Maybe yes. So I began thinking about it and made a few first and really crude attempts. And I got the bug, the bookbinding bug. Do you, do you have any of the, of the books, uh, any of your first books uh, uh, with you or? Uh, no, unfortunately, no. But I have the second one I ever made. Uh, I've made a post at my blog about it, so people can see it and cringe. Yeah, we, can, we can link it below. Uh, what were you studying at the university? Uh, was the hobby connected to your uh, actual profession at the time? I was studying uh, linguistics. Well, So, in a way... <laughs> <laughs> that was quite 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 a jump how did you start uh, in uh, leather working did you have some kind of previous experience no you... not really um i i just i just picked it up at some point i i can't really remember any specific reason for that i always like uh, I always liked and enjoyed making things with my hands and leather was something fairly easy to work with. It was easy to, to buy it. It didn't need a lot of tools, at least for the things I was making. Uh, it was easy to do in a confined space. You know, you can make uh, a small wallet anywhere. You don't need a big or complex setup to do that. And since, you know, I, at least at the beginning, I assumed that working with leather would transfer well uh, to working with books bound in leather. Um, it seemed like uh, a natural transition. Uh, was it as natural as you'd, ex uh, as you'd expected? Well, mostly no, mostly no. It, when you fool around, it might be, but when you get serious about it, you need um, uh, you need space, you need many tools, you need to have, you know, a lot of things. And uh, for what is more, I didn't begin from the simple forms of book binding, for example, you know, soft bindings with long stitch. I didn't even know those forms existed at the beginning, which would be very convenient if I did. 
but well yeah, if, if you do it you do it you do it big <laughs> yeah exactly what was your very first project my very first project mm, when i was learning or, or as a as a professional i mean the the, the first cringy ones what what were they oh the, because okay. uh, it's just it's just that i noticed browsing through your uh, books and now it makes sense uh, that you said uh, that you uh, studied linguistics many of those texts are rather interesting one even when choosing from shakespeare's works you don't just choose hamlet you also choose uh, andronicus i mean that's a choice and many other books are also rather interesting ones were, were the very first books you bound some of your favorite ones how do you choose those texts well um i think my first proper binding was indeed one of the books I really like, it was uh, Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, uh, translated by uh, a Greek, a Greek author I, I really love. And uh, <clears throat> it's, uh, I think I've listed it as one of my first posts at the blog. But uh, most of the bindings you see at my blog are commissioned bindings. Uh, with the exception, perhaps, of Titus Andronicus, which I chose. Um, it was to be an entry for a competition. And I really like the fact that it, in many ways, it's kind of like a Tarantino movie, you know. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, of gore, but also nuance in it. Kind of like that. Uh, and how long did it take uh, for you to start binding professionally, or uh, where did the very first orders come from? Hmm. I think, I think it was three, three years, about three years. And after that, I, I slowly began binding books for other people. Um, the first commissions always come from, you know, people uh, in your social circle. From people you know, they see you are trying something new, you are learning craft, and they, you know, they give you a shot. But was it was it your goal to uh, become a, a professional bookbinder, or it just happened naturally? Hmm. Well, at the at the time I began learning bookbinding, I knew I didn't want to be a professor. Uh, which is, you know, the main course uh, after the studies I was doing at the time. So for the first months, I was really intrigued by bookbinding, but I didn't have, you know, uh, such a goal. But after that, it became more and more apparent that this is what I want to do. This is, this speaks to me on many levels. I also left academia a few years back. Uh, uh, what, what was it for you? Uh, why, why, uh, why did you go into the linguistics and why did it, didn't it stick? Well, um, to be honest, I was uh, really disappointed by, uh, by what I encountered at the university because I, I, I really liked the the subject I chose for my studies and there was there was kind of indifference don't know I think it's the best word from the university it was just stale lessons um, there was nothing you know to to give you intellectual supplies to be to be creative or to to take it to to a next level you know it was just okay here's what you need to know get your diploma get out there and didn't really like that so you didn't feel uh, passion there but you found your passion in bookbinding exactly and then, well and then, and then you moved to teaching bookbinding so uh your professoral career <laughs> found you in the end. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess uh, 
I ended up teaching anyway. Um, well, as for Pavel's comment, I, I still really like, you know, literature and linguistics. It's just that I don't, I don't pursue them in the context of academia. It reminds me of, uh, kind of reminds me of a comment by Mark Twain, who said, I never, I never did let school interfere with my education. Something like that. Do, uh, do, do you think your uh, background and uh, deeper connection to the text helps you in your work? Say, uh, when you design bookbinding, do you think it helps that you can feel the text better? Well, maybe, maybe to, to some extent, because um, you can you can see that in in many bindings that I use, I try to use the words and letters themselves in the design. And I feel that creates kind of a, a blending, a continuity, you know. Um, but in the end, you know, it's it's the story that matters, whether I'm uh, I'm really good or not with language um, affects only to a small extent. And speaking of design, it's one thing to acquire a set of skills to make a binding, and it's a whole different species of fish to uh, design a binding. Uh, did you uh, 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 do you have any background in design, in arts, or did it come naturally in the process? How well, um, no, I have no background at all. And uh, it's actually also frustrating because everyone in my family is a painter or, you know, my sister is a comic artist. My father uh, is an icon painter and he also paints murals in churches. And my mother has also uh, made some exhibitions with painting and I'm the only one who can't draw, uh, even if my life depended on it, I suck at it. So not only I don't have a background in design, but I consider myself handicapped as well. So it's a real struggle coming up with designs. Did you have any collaborations with your relatives? Uh, sometimes my sister, who's a comic artist, uh, helps me with, uh, with an idea or a concept. She makes some rough sketch to help me visualize it. Would it be interesting for you to make uh, uh, a binding styled in, in this uh, uh, specific comic book style? Because uh, it, it can be, very interesting if it's it's put in leather with onlays and all that stuff. Uh, yeah, but it I, still I know, retains I know. the comic stuff, uh, comic style. Mm. Well, that that certainly would be interesting. Thing is, uh, people who who own comics usually don't bind them because that way they lose their collective the value. Yeah. value. Yeah. 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 Well, maybe for some. You can always, you can always make, um, you know, protective cases or boxes. Though yeah. I guess they don't think about it. Yeah. yeah, maybe for some competition or something. Hmm. Sure. And sp speaking of drawing, you say you can't draw, but say your uh, book cover for Hamlet is very well drawn. Was it hand drawn, or do you use computers? Well. Uh, when I say I can't draw, I mean my skills are only up to stick persons. So when it comes to Hamlet, as you can see, the design is mainly composed with letters, which was something I could do. And the part of it that isn't letters, the skull, uh, was actually uh, drawn by my sister based on you know, some yeah. some reference yeah you, you said your father was, uh, was an icon painter so i assume in a very traditional orthodox style yeah um, exactly have you ever have you uh, ever explored uh, that direction 
because uh, of the Greek books, uh, of the ancient Greek books, perhaps the most interesting are the ones that uh, have uh, drawings or inlays on them in this very old tradition. Have you ever thought of pursuing that? You mean like uh, like Byzantine codices, something like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I've, um, I've been wanting to do that, you know, to explore that, but um, Byzantine binding is kind of intimidating, you know. It's uh, it's big, it's complex, it's um, it's heavy. Uh, it's not easy to get into it, but I'm hoping I'm hoping I'll try it at some point. I guess I'm uh, jumping ahead, uh, but uh, as a, a woodworker and metal worker, you seem to have uh, the needed skill set to produce uh, uh, medieval binding, uh, like all elements uh, in in one uh, uh, shop, uh, because you can do the wooden boards, you can do the metal elements, you can do everything. You can bind it together and. Uh, uh, make a design for for the cover, so it's it's it seems like a job tailored for you. Yeah, and uh, that's why I've um, I have experimented with that a bit in a recent binding of mine. Uh, I want to make a correction. I I don't do woodworking. The handles for my tools are made by you know wood turners. Okay. But that aside. I, it's true that I can do many of the things required, which usually need to uh, make it necessary to cooperate with different people. And that's why it's very intriguing. It's, uh, you know, it seems within reach. And when you don't have to rely so much on others, um, you can experiment more easily you can you can try things and the only limit is your own skills yeah. uh, do you incorporate metal elements into your bindings I don't, well i don't think i've seen that most of my bindings are commission work so unless the client requests for something like that i don't but um, i i plan to do uh, more of that in some projects of my own uh, because it's it's exciting you can do you can do anything really with that as long as you as you prepare properly and you uh, and you manage to to pass the design obstacles uh, there's there's so much that can be done and I don't feel it has been explored in in a modern sense you know metal work on bindings uh, we're kind of left back mostly there are some some designers some uh, designer book binders and some book artists that have explored it but for the most part uh, it has remained you know where it was in the middle ages the renaissance with some of our previous guests we discussed uh, that uh... It's uh, quite important for for a book artist uh, or maybe an artist in general not to be uh, a slave to their own style and to experiment and to look around and think out of the box. And uh, with uh, uh, at least some of your bindings, we can see that, uh, and you mentioned it, that there is uh, this uh, uh, um, trait that you use letters as elements of design. And the other thing is that uh, it, it really seems that you like tooling, both blind tooling and, and gold tooling. Uh, I, I wouldn't say though that uh, these are the uh, uh, traits of your uh, bindings that are so uh, you know uh, persistent in all in all your works that the, this makes uh, all the works look alike. So uh, it's 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 something that connects them, but still. Uh, you do not look like a slave of your, of your own style. But uh, what 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 do you think about it? What what are your experiments? How how you you know try to think out of the box with your works? Well, um, 
what you say is interesting because uh, I actually don't feel I have achieved, at least to this point, uh, to have a personal style. It's some of the things that I've been thinking a lot about and made some realization uh, in recent time. And when it comes to letters, uh, I think I think they lend them, themselves beautifully because, you know, uh, people, uh, font makers have actually put in the work to make them beautiful, to make them uh, visually pleasing, but also practical, in a sense. So uh, it's it only makes sense using them as uh, part of a design. And it also creates the, you know, the continuity with the text that I mentioned earlier. But it's also, it's also an, an easy way to go around my inability to, to compose a design by drawing. That said, I try to, I try to experiment by, by challenging a bit myself, for example, Recently, a client requested me a couple of things that are totally out of my comfort zone. And I was really hesitant, but in the end, I said, you know, to hell with it. Let's go. Let's try it. Why not? And I think it's, uh, you know, sometimes in order to go out of the box, you need a little nudge by someone. And sometimes you just want to try something that, you know, it's not, it's not exactly within your reach. So there's kind of a mix between those two. Speaking of clients, could you uh, tell about uh, some of the relationships you've had with them? Because it's, it's often a collaborative experience. Mm, exactly. Uh, uh, well, what would be the more, the more interesting cases of that? Well, um, since uh, most of my bindings are commission work, um, you know, the owner usually has some kind of request, whether that is something very particular or a small detail or something that has to do with a general concept. And I always find found it interesting trying to trying to work as much with the client as possible. Um, not in a way that I become simply an extension of their idea, but uh, to more to to achieve a result that has both me and the owner in it. You know, I'm not I'm not the only one. Uh, that is, uh, uh, the book is not mine. The book belongs to someone else, and that someone else is uh, is caring about it, wants specific things about it. But so far, I I have been lucky enough to have uh, great collaborations. Uh, they're usually very cooperative. They they hear my suggestions, they, they will, you know, encourage my ideas. I try to explain everything as much as I can and as thoroughly as I can. Um, and one of the things that have really worked for me is, uh, you know, the old motto, educate your customers. I've had a lot of people who have come to me and they don't know a lot about book binding. They're just, you know, excited in the prospect of binding a book. And it has been very beneficial explaining the process to them so they can know what to expect, what is possible and what is not. Because in many cases, they'll come and ask, you know, for those 18th century bindings that are very ornate, very elaborate, and I have to explain that, guys, this is either impossible or very difficult to do. Uh, we're, we're really used to that image, but uh, it's not uh, the fact we're used to it doesn't mean it's easy to do. 
So there's a lot of correspondence and back and forth. And they, the nice thing about that is that you see creative aspects of a certain person coming to the surface through this. They might not be, uh, uh, they might not be creative otherwise, they might not have a creative hobby or their profession might be, let's call it mundane, but they often get excited and, you know, become, become inquiring and think of interesting things through this process. What would be the most unusual thing, thing you were asked by a client? The most? Unusual. The most unusual. Oh. Um, I think I think the most unusual was um, was uh, uh, a, a spell book, but uh, it was kind of asked in earnest, you know, to actually be a magic book. Okay. It's it's kind of beyond my skill set. Don't know. <laughs> Although you do seem uh, to be deeply interested in Tolkien, fantasy, RPGs, so I assume you could, you could find a decent set of spells. You couldn't guarantee that, that they worked, but... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, I guess my, my next question is... Uh, is has has a bit of connection with this uh, uh, magic stuff, but not not really magic, but maybe a weight of tradition or something. Uh, we had some guests uh, uh, from from United States. They have pretty modern modern bookbinding tradition, which of course uh, uh, stays on the shoulders of uh, European uh, uh, main European tradition, uh, German, uh, French, and uh, British uh, European tradition. And we also had some guests from from France and from Great Britain. Uh, but then we started to move closer to uh, uh, Balkans, and we had a guest from uh, um, from Sofia from Bulgaria, and we discussed the medieval bindings with him. And uh, uh, finally, we come to to Greece, uh, uh, where, to to you know to sort of uh, uh, the cradle of uh, European uh, book binding and bookish tradition, this uh, Byzantine bindings and all that stuff. Uh, for for one, do you? feel uh, this tradition uh, backing you and uh, on the other hand do you feel the weight of this tradition and you know the need to uh, be forced of it well it's uh, it's strange because as you said uh, there's a weight to this tradition but there's also kind of a dissonance um, there has been a great gap between, you know, the Byzantine era to our era when it comes to bookbinding. Bookbinding had to be reintroduced to Greece after the 400-year occupation by the Ottomans. And so it was as if starting from scratch. And so this has led to to the Byzantine bindings being more of a, of a reference, something you know it be, kind of belongs to you, but not exactly. You don't feel it's there. It's something like a dead, dead language of bookbinding. Yeah, yeah, kind of. And it's, um, it's a pity, really, because there's there's a lot to explore there and i i was recently talking with someone who asked me why do you why don't you you know uh, why don't you incorporate elements of that of that binding school into your work now why don't you try to you know to assimilate it creatively and I really didn't have an answer for him because uh, it's something that one would expect we would have tried, but it's not easy. It, uh, it also, I feel, would require um, a collaborative effort in that direction. 
It's, uh, it's as if reclaiming your past, it's not something that a single person, a single binder can do easily. From what I understand, it's not just in bookbinding that there is this disconnect with uh, uh, Greece's Byzantine past. I often hear from my Greek friends that uh, they feel deeper connection to the ancient Greek culture that was uh, further back and lasted less than the great Byzantine culture that uh, lasted for over a, a thousand years. Mm. But uh, that connection was lost not only through Turkish uh, occupation, but also through nationalistic movements that followed them because they wanted to connect themselves to the most ancient de de democracy and downplaying the authoritarian regime that was Byzantine Empire. Yeah, it's, uh, that's true. Uh, there's also another thing um, that doesn't help in getting more to know the Byzantine era, which, as you mentioned, lasted a very long time. It's the fact that the, uh, many of the ancient, you know, buildings or artifacts have, have sort of remained intact while the remnants of the Byzantine era got, uh, got lost in the constant remaking of cities. Um, while, for example, ancient monuments have been buried, but the, the buildings of Byzantine era uh, are not that long ago. They, they went through other uses as time went by and they crumpled and they were, you know, taken apart and used anew as spolia. And that uh, it's, you have to piece together the Byzantine era more. You have to put more effort in putting together an image of the Byzantine era than you have to do for the ancient Greek era. Well, you can, you can still go to Thessaloniki, you can still go to the monasteries, you can still 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 find it. But uh, I guess uh, the, uh, the books and the paintings are all in the museums now. So they're not they're no longer part of your everyday life. And Athens has hardly any uh, Byzantine architecture from what I remember. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's the, the religious aspect has survived more or less intact. It's, it's the one thing that, you know, has remained the same practically. And that's, that's the main connection. And I think it's a pity because there's, there are a lot of interesting things in the Byzantine era in many ways in science, in literature, in architecture, and uh, they often get overlooked because the ancient Greek era, uh, which is of course very important, is a lot more prominent, is a lot more out there, is a lot more Greek, you could say. It's, it's more difficult to find the connection with the Greek identity in the Byzantine era. So uh, it makes sense that the nationalist movements try to reclaim the, the long past, you know, the, the ancient past and not the recent, you could say, past. And uh, speaking of the, the Byzantine bindings, do you have easy access? Uh, to it, can you just go to a museum and see masterpieces of that era? Because I certainly can. I can go to the Kremlin and I can see uh, uh, dozens and dozens of real masterpieces of that sort. But I, I don't know what the situation is uh, back at you. Well, the, there is the, um, the Byzantine Museum in the center of Athens and it has uh, quite a few um, quite a few bindings from that era that you can see, but not as many as you mentioned, for example, for the Kremlin, for example. 
you could visit some libraries that have some extraordinary uh, bindings, but uh, most people don't know about it, simply don't know about it. And there isn't a lot of uh, effort in you know, making it more popular, making it more known. It, it is accessible, but you have to, to dig for it. Or you need to go to places like Mount Athos, which is inaccessible yeah. to half the population and also not exactly uh, on the main track. You have to go there. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a big trip. You have to plan for it. But if you are, if you are interested in, in books and bindings and the history of, uh, of the written speech, the written word, um, it's definitely a trip worth doing. Um, you have to, there's naturally, there's also a, a religious context to it, um, which I, I assume many people do not feel comfortable with. So uh, maybe, maybe libraries and institutions which are more accessible should, you know, put, put, a little bit more effort. I understand it's not easy, and it's not um, it's not a very marketable subject. But um, there's a lot of interesting things there, and there are many layers which someone can explore. You know about history, about books, about the the craftsmen and the artisans that created those bindings. There are a lot of connections. I wanted also to talk a bit about uh, this uh, previous year because it was uh, really strange for uh, many of us and uh, especially strange for people who uh, teach, especially people who teach in their own uh, workshops and studios because all of the limitations. And uh, uh, this podcast is also a bit uh, uh, unusual because uh, uh, you recorded the workshop tour and uh, we will uh, edit it uh, a bit later uh, in the second, I guess, in the second part of this podcast uh, and we will uh, discuss it. And uh, you talked about uh, uh, having classes uh, uh, during your workshop just a bit, but still I wanted to ask you how, how was it uh, last year uh do you do online classes uh, now that uh, there are some limitations and lockdowns what are your plans for 2021 how 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 does it go well um the 2020 was uh, was a disaster in terms of uh, of workshops and classes i the first lockdown when the the, during the initial break, breakout, uh, basically split split my seminar that was ongoing at the time in half, and uh, half of the students didn't return afterwards uh, during yeah. summer uh, because you know they were concerned about being in a space with you know more people and. It has also been a problem in general because, you know, during September and October, we didn't have a lockdown and then uh, we did. And that again, once more, uh, cut another seminar in half. So I'm just waiting to weather the storms. I, I don't have really any plans uh, besides waiting for things to return to normal and uh, you can't really know how things will go there might be a lockdown and now there might not be in the next month and you can't really plan anything with these sort of conditions as far as online uh, courses go i to be honest i am not as tech savvy as it is required to do that um, I don't know what the setup is. I don't have the skills to, to, to learn about it or the time, you know, to, 
to put the necessary effort and resources in that. And most of all, it's uh, as as another guest of your podcast podcast has uh, had mentioned. It's it's a hands-on thing. Bookbinding. Uh, there there are many difficulties in doing lessons online, and I I really congratulate the the fellow binders who managed to to pull it off. You have to both the student and the and the person teaching must have the same equipment, the same tools, which is not always easy. And of course, uh, there are many things that you can't uh, that you can't translate into this format. For example, pressure. Um, you can't see the angles of things easily. Um, you can't hear very well. For example, when my students saw a book, I can tell by the sound of it that they're not doing it right. And I can, I can illustrate that to them. It's, it's not easy to do that through, you know, through headphones. And that's just one thing. Yeah, that's true. Uh, when, when you are teaching online, uh, when you're teaching crafts online, uh, students get uh, uh, half experience at best, uh, maybe even less, uh, because uh, a lot of things are passed through feeling and, uh, and you're absolutely right through sounds. You, you have to be there. You have to be in touch with the book. You have to, to be able to see uh, the process through, through many different angles. It's, uh, let's not forget that books are a 3D object. It's, um, it has texture, it has a lot of moving parts and uh, a monitor screen is a flat thing. You know, you can't get a good, a good feel of what's going on. But it, it works, you know, in, in simple forms and in specific techniques, it can work. That's, uh, let's not overlook that. And what about your uh, uh, other uh, endeavors? Has lockdown in, impacted uh, production of tools or your work in any other way? Uh, because uh, Stepan, uh, on the contrary, has almost been overwhelmed. By, uh, um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's one of the most unexpected things, really, because uh, uh, since since October, I'm pretty much in the same state as the one you described for Stepan. I've been getting, you know, many many tool orders, and uh, they're actually somewhat more than I can handle, than I feel comfortable with. And I, I need someone to help me, but I can't have anyone because of the lockdown. Uh, it has, of course, created a lot of problems. Um, suppliers, for example, there's not easy access to them or they don't stock um, everything I need. I, Stepan, you probably know uh, a lot of this or they deliver not not in two days but in three weeks or something like that and it, it, it leads to delays and troubles and then uh, orders start to accumulate and you are in panic mode and it's just yeah. exactly exactly <laughs> oh oh god yeah it's it's pretty much like that but it's a good thing because um, i was reasonably <laughs> expecting everything to go to everything to flatline, you know, no, no commissions, no, no tool orders. And the opposite has happened, which was a pleasant surprise. It, and it's the, the one good thing in all this mess. Well, it's, it's really good to hear that uh, a fellow, fellow artisan is, uh, uh, is, you know, had a, has a lot of work to do and, uh, 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 hopefully, uh, some profits. <laughs> uh, perhaps may, many new bookbinders appeared in this year. Perhaps many uh, many new people uh, moved to professionals because they have more time on their hands. Let, well, let, that, let, let's hope so. That was my, my guess. That was my guess because I, I definitely saw 
uh, arise in orders uh, uh, during the uh, last spring when the first lockdown was introduced and uh, uh, part of it definitely is due to uh, natural growth of, of my uh, of my shop but uh, I think that part of it uh, happened because of the uh, fact that uh, many people are sitting at home and they 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 want to spend more time on their hobbies or or try something new or something like mm. that. Yeah, exactly. And and as it's as is the case usually with uh, with rough times, um, people tend to also reevaluate, you know, their course. Uh, for example, during the the. 2008-2019 financial recession, the financial crisis, a lot of people in Greece uh, either abandoned their profession or simply lost their job and they, the ones they could at least, they tried their hand at something that they wouldn't otherwise. And I think bookbinding either as a hobby or as a profession comes into this. It's it's something that would not be considered uh, as much as an option in, you know, in when things are ordinary, but people staying more at home or people feeling insecure about their job is often an incentive to, to push into a direction that uh, you didn't feel uh, very, you know, it it required a somewhat a bit of a courage before you know it was considered a leap to do so and now it seems it seems like a possible option i wanted to ask about uh, uh greek bookbinders are there many that's that's what how i wanted to do as well what <laughs> <laughs> a coincidence uh, how are you organized? Is there a guild, a professional organization? Are there uh, book fairs where you see each other? How does it work? Is it and is it more like a fellowship or it's, you know, a competitive arena? Well, um, we, I think we are, we are many compared to the size, you know, of the general population. I've talked with for example, colleagues in Canada, and there are fewer binders there than they are in Greece. Um, we're mostly in Athens. There are really few outside Athens, and there is indeed a guild. I'm actually a board member of the guild. And it used to be more competitive, much more, but um, through the years of the financial crisis, a lot of the shops of the binders closed. And so the ones that have remained for the most part, you know, care and help each other. So it's a, it's a very welcoming community, really. We, we try to, to do as many events as possible. Of course, the pandemic has it, hasn't helped at all. And uh, there used to be a lot, of, a lot of book fairs, which was uh, a nice um, opportunity you know, to display our craft, but that more or less died out during the crisis, the financial crisis. Um, we'll, we're, we're trying to be as active as possible though, you know, to, to introduce people to our craft. And one of the things we do is there's an event called Bindery Day or something like that in free translation, where we, uh, where a certain number of binderies is open uh, to the public and devotes that day in explaining what we do and showing certain techniques to visitors. And so it's a, it's, it's a nice community, I think. It's a nice community and uh, one that tries to, to be as active as possible.
are there any large binder binders there uh, or uh, uh, most of them are one person uh, ventures well um, there are there are quite a few trade binders you know big binders mm -hmm. but it depends on what someone uh, considers big i was recently talking with uh, a fellow binder in germany and she mentioned that uh, she's working in a bindery that has 50 people working in it and i said wow i mean the the largest bindery i can think of had 10 people in it and for the most part though uh, i think uh, what you'll encounter more are you know single binder shops um, and the work is kind of divided between those two types of binders. Uh, publishing houses most often go to trade binderies, mm -hmm. as is, uh, you know, as one would expect. And people or collectors or anyone having one to a small number of books that they want to bind visit, you know, um, the single single artisan binders. Is there some kind of uh, set career path for someone who wants to become a binder? Is there an apprenticeship system? Uh, how do you become a guild member? Do you just come and show your books or do, do you have to go through some kind of certification? Well, the first of all, the guild is not open only to book binders. It's uh, also open to anyone who is interested in book binding, whether they practice it or not. Um, so you just have to show up, say, I like what you do and pay a, a very small fee. Uh, and you're a member, congratulations. Um, what was the first thing you asked? Do you have some kind of uh, apprenticeship system? Oh, yes. Okay. Well, there used to be an apprenticeship during, um, during the 90s, the 80s and the 90s, but, and most of the bookbinders that are currently active, or at least many, uh, came from that, from that um, program, but uh, it, it stopped receiving funds from, you know, from the state, from the government. So, it, uh, it couldn't go on. But nowadays there's not, there's not an apprenticeship of sorts. There's not, uh, there are many bookbinders who teach bookbinding, who have uh, courses, but there's not, you know, a cohesive full course on bookbinding provided by the guild itself. And it's something we've been discussing um, but it's very difficult to do. You know, it requires it requires a, a proper space with all the necessary equipment, and the the guild doesn't have the resources for that, which is you know the main obstacle. And who's your average uh, student? I mean, uh, gender, age, uh, background, profession, things like that. Well, gender-wise, it's mostly women, uh, the vast majority. Mm -hmm. um, Age-wise, I think it's it's a split between um, between uh, twenty to thirty and fifty plus. It's uh, the the middle, the middle age, the kind of 40 to 50, 35 to 50, uh, maybe they're too busy. Uh, yeah, I guess, you so. know, to, to attend. That's exactly what, what I saw as well when I was uh, keeping hmm. it by me. Um, and their background varies a lot. It can be anything really. Um, because each one is drawn to bookbinding for different reasons. I've had uh, a lot of people who do something um, 
that is totally relevant to handcrafting and they're they're very into it they're, and they're really good they're often really good um i wish more people during during uh, study years during their university time would come though because that's where you have enough time in to to invest into bookbinding and you know to become to become good to progress and maybe you know pursue it as a career because by the time you are 27 30 uh, you have kind of settled into something and it's not as easy you know to to change course yeah i guess so i i was 25 26 when i started making books <laughs> so, mm. yeah. it's it's not easy it's not easy. i also want yeah, to, yeah. wanted to return a bit to your uh, comments about trade binaries and germany and all that stuff because uh, uh during our discussions with our guests from from united kingdom and from united states and other countries uh, it really seems that uh, uh, these large binaries where 50, 50 employees are working, making books, is, it, it seems that it's something that remains maybe only in Germany, because I, I'm not, I, I don't think uh, there are many large binaries left in France. It seems that there are no large binaries with, uh, 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 I don't know, dozens of people working there uh, remaining in, in the UK. Uh, there are still some trade binaries, but they are not as large as they were. There are definitely no large binaries in the United States. Uh, I don't know of any uh, large binaries uh, with more than, I don't know, 10 to 15 employees in Russia. Uh, in Eastern Europe, you told us about Greece that uh, largest binaries are something like uh, 10 people or something. And uh, yeah, it seems that I, well, there, there also is Asia, and uh, that's that's a completely different topic to discuss. And uh, unfortunately, I'm not an expert, and I cannot share any thoughts on that. But I hope we will have some guests who will help us to, you know, to see what the picture mm. is there. Uh, but it definitely seems that uh, Germany is the last remaining power in, in, in large trade binders. <laughs> mm, definitely, and um, it's. It's interesting because in such a large binary, things dif work very differently, and uh, and that's that's what I was discussing that that you get to learn things that you cannot otherwise in such a binary in such a large binary, and but that also I think. Uh, that has pushed single binders to to multitask more to become to to diversify their skill sets more yeah. compared to the past where you know each binder had its post in the bindery and they were doing specific things and probably that has contributed i think uh, to the to the growth of of the art of bookbinding because you have a lot of binders trying things and being being good in many different techniques and this is something that wasn't required in the past i also think that there might be another factor that uh, people uh, no longer order many copies of the same design they want to have uh, 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 a book that is unique to them, and so they uh, they'll sooner uh, uh, order a book from you or from someone else they found online, and then uh, and they see that every book is different. Then they'll go to a professional bindery who make orders of fifty or a hundred or two hundred books that are all similar. So it's kind of coincided. The the, the market changed. And also the uh, the professional part of it changed. Mm, sure, sure. It's um, uh, it's interesting because we hear a lot that the book as as an object is declining, 
whereas uh, in my trade I, I see the opposite. I see it becoming perhaps a bit more niche, but I see more people involved in, you know, in book binding, more people commissioning uh, unique bindings than uh, it was the case when I first began. And you can, I think, also see that in the many small uh, small uh, printing houses that have popped up during you know, the last two decades, and you see amazing work uh, done in that field. In, uh, however, I, I may also add that uh, doing unique bindings can, and doing mostly that can also be frustrating. Sometimes, uh, sometimes you want the repetitive work, even if that sounds, you know, uh, not sexy. You want to be able to do that, to do something that has some repeatability to it for peace of mind. Yeah. And I guess global economy also helps artisans like us. I remember my, my uh, first attempts to, you know, to gauge uh, the audience when, when we were thinking about uh, uh, more than five years ago, uh, when my wife and I we were thinking about buying a book binding, uh, the website. And um, I went to Facebook and... Uh, uh, when you started an advertisement campaign there, uh, they offer you uh, to gauge the audience based on interest of people. You can, you can, for example, you can input book binding and you can see how large is the audience of people who uh, tag the book binding as their interest. And it was like uh, something like uh, 3 million people interested in book binding uh, six years ago on Facebook. So, and I thought, okay, if I, if I even get, you know, tens of a percent of the audience, <laughs> that would be enough mm -hmm. for me to, you know, to have a business in, in this global uh, market of, of, of today's. And uh, I guess this, this should help a bit uh, uh, design book binders as well. Uh, uh, do you, do you have many uh, customers from, from abroad or your main customer is, is from Greece? Well, I, I, I work almost exclusively with clients from abroad. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, that's, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an odd fruit. Most of my colleagues here do the exact opposite. Um, and okay. that sort of came naturally because I began, I began with the blog and the blog, you know, attracted people from abroad and it kept growing. And so it became, uh, it became the main thing, which, which was uh, really life-saving because it kept me uh, kind of afloat during, during the crisis. And it's mm -hmm. also, it has also helped a lot um, during the pandemic, during the last year, because, you know, people don't have as easy access to the binary. And I agree that I'm also, I'm also seeing, uh, you know, a growth in the community, in the people interested in bookbinding. And you've also done a great job with iBook binding. You know, you took it to, to very, to very interesting places. And this podcast is a great example of that. Well, thank you. It's a great pleasure, you know, to meet all these different people and to talk about uh, nice, nice things, especially uh, during 2020. Pavel, do you have any, any additional questions now or should we proceed to the second part of our uh, podcast and uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. do a bit of show and tell and uh, uh, do this uh, workshop tour and all that stuff? I, ha I have a few questions about the, uh, the top and so... Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then we will uh, uh, proceed. 
to the second part where we will discuss some of uh, Dimitri's bindings and uh, I see a video with a workshop tour and discuss this workshop tour and also discuss uh, uh, tools that uh, Dimitri made. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Dimitris. It was a great pleasure to see you uh, al almost like in real life and uh, to finally talk to you and to hear your story. Uh, thank yeah. you. I thank you very much yeah. uh, again for the invitation. And it was, it was a great talk. I, uh, as I, as I've said, I was kind of nervous at the, you know, at the thought of it, but uh, it was nothing like that. It was, it was great. Yeah. I hope you will return to, to our podcast, maybe to the shorter version of our uh, podcast, uh, Bookish Talk, uh, to discuss uh, some of your new tools or bindings in the future. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Would be a pleasure. And, and uh, many thanks to all our community members, uh, all uh, everybody who uh, is subscribed to our channel uh, on YouTube or who visits uh, our Instagram accounts. And uh, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon. Uh, thanks to their uh, pledges, we are able to pay for editing of these videos. And that, uh, that, that really helps a lot. Uh, if you are ready to uh, share a dollar or more per month with us, uh, please uh, use the link below and uh, become one of our uh, Patreon supporters. This year, it may be even more important because we have some plans to uh, add additional hosts to our project and uh, uh, include a, a start a French speaking branch of our podcast. Uh, and uh, this will be uh, possible, of course, if we have enough budget for that. So <laughs> join the crowd. <laughs> uh, thanks. Thanks a lot for watching. And uh, if you haven't subscribed, uh, consider subscribing. And uh, uh, see you next time. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.